Wisconsin, a paranormal paradise. With lake monsters, dogmen, haunted hotels, famous ghosts, and deadly killers. It's a lot more than just America's Dairyland. It's time for a deep dive into the weird, wonderful, and terrifying that's lying just below the surface of reality. From American Ghost Walks and Badgerland Legends, this is the Wisconsin Legends Podcast. Welcome to Wisconsin Legends Podcast, presented by American Ghost Walks. I'm Mike Huberty, the owner of American Ghost Walks. We provide haunted history tours, and we are based in Madison, Wisconsin. And I'm with... Jeff Finnup with Badgerland Legends. Check me out at Badgerland Legends on Instagram, a Wisconsin legend, one post at a time. Right on. Today, we are going to Milwaukee, summer of 1991, to talk about a killer on the loose. Now, Jeff, what if I told you about a killer on the loose in the 1980s who got his victims from gay bars, invited them over, offered them drinks, once they were incapacitated, strangled them to death. Then he pleasured himself over the bodies of the corpses. After that, he dismembered the victims, kept the bodies in the apartment, and he killed a dozen men and boys over a five-year period. Who would you think I was talking about? That sounds a lot like the Cream City Killer, Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> it does sound like it. However, there's a killer just like Jeffrey Dahmer in the UK who had done his murders between 1978 and 1983 by the name of Dennis Nielsen. And so even though he had kind of the same MO as Jeffrey Dahmer, he did the same kind of thing, you know, the same kind of targets and uh, the same type of murders, the same time a sick, you know, necrophilia type of thing. Hardly anybody in the United States knows who Dennis Nielsen is, even though he's a fairly famous serial killer in the UK. But Google searches for Jeffrey Dahmer are 13 times that of Dennis Nielsen. And so I was thinking about what's the difference in that fascination? Why is Jeffrey Dahmer different than Dennis Nielsen, even though they did the same types of things? What is captivating about him? I think the first thing about that is cannibalism. You know, you, you mentioned the, the Cream City Killer, right? What, what else do people call Jeffrey Dahmer? The Milwaukee Cannibal. The Milwaukee Cannibal. And that's just something that, you know, in our souls, we are disgusted by cannibalism. It, it, you know, it, it's one of humans' first taboos. It's, you know, it's right in, uh, you go to the Bible in uh, Deuteronomy 28, um, the people who disobey God get cursed with cannibalism. Let me read you this. Because of the suffering your enemy will inflict on you during the siege, you will eat the fruit of the womb, the flesh of the sons and daughters the Lord your God has given you. Even the most gentle and sensitive man among you will have no compassion on his brother or the wife he loves or his surviving children, and he will not give to one of them any of the flesh of his children that he is eating. It will be all he has left because of the suffering your enemy will afflict on you during the siege of your cities. And so that's the curse when you disobey God, like in the first five books of the Old Testament, when you're talking about Native Americans. The legend of the Wendigo is even if you are starving, if you resort to cannibalism, if you resort to eating another human being, 
you will eventually be overtaken by this evil spirit and cursed to wander in the frozen waste, you know, and hunt people for the rest of eternity. And the Wendigo is so scary, right? You're not even supposed to say its name. In fact, I should not even be using its name right now because they're going to come at us in the frozen waste here in Madison, Wisconsin. That's right. But, you know, that taboo is really what makes Jeffrey Dahmer different. He broke it. Not just the necrophilia thing, which is gross to people enough. It's he breaks the taboo of eating human flesh and and people end up focusing on that as the thing that he did. And when you take the context at the time, you, you kind of find out why they focused on that. Number one, July 23rd, 1991. That's when he hits the news. I remember I, it was the summer between my eighth grade and freshman year of high school. I woke up like late, you know, cause I'm like 13 or 14 or something like that. And so I wake up at like nine or 10 and my mother said, there's something very shocking on the news today. Because it had already hit, you know, already breaking news in the Milwaukee area news stations. And where you grew up, how far were you from Milwaukee? Oh, I mean, I was 20 minutes from where the murders happened. So it literally hit close to home. Yeah. And so this is all of a sudden. And the funny thing is, is that just a couple weeks before, we had gone to see Silence of the Lambs at uh, the budget theater or whatever over the summer. And the Sons of the Lambs came out on Valentine's Day, very romantic, in 1991, five months before the capture. But, I mean, Sons of the Lambs was a huge, I mean, 30 years later now we're talking about it, it was a huge phenomenon. Remember, so Sons of the Lambs takes the best picture Oscar, best actor, and best actress. So it's a critical success. It is a huge box office success. And its main character... Hannibal the Cannibal Lecter, his main character, is a cannibalistic serial killer. He says that famous line talking about a census taker coming to visit him, that I ate his liver with a nice Chianti and fava beans. You know, right? He says that. Love that line. Right. It's great. It's scary and it's fascinating. So Hannibal Lecter all of a sudden is this super intelligent, cannibalistic monster that we see in the film. And... You know, I'd seen it just a couple of weeks, and most people had seen it within a few months. And so in 1991, we already had cannibalistic serial killers in the mainstream culture. I think that's an interesting thing is now because this is one of the reasons all of a sudden we're focused on cannibalism. Jeffrey Dahmer starts being called the Milwaukee cannibal, the cream city cannibal. You know, besides the taboo, I mean, cannibal is something that it's deep in human history from the Aztecs using it as punishment for their enemies to some people, it's something called endocannibalism. Um, some cultures eat the dead to remember them. So they eat an ancestor that had died recently as part of keeping that ancestor inside them, keeping the spirit of that ancestor inside them and remembering them. It's, almost, it's called mortuary cannibalism. And as we talk about what Jeffrey Dahmer did, the human ritual for something like mortuary cannibalism might make more sense. And it's also practiced in the main religion of the United States. And right. little people make that connection. No, I, I don't think they do either. That in, in communion, at the end of mass, 
when the, you know, the priest comes out and says like, he's reciting what Jesus said, eat the flesh of my body, drink my blood. And the transubstantiation is what the church calls it when they, the bread actually is supposed to become the flesh of Christ and the wine is supposed to become the blood. And so that idea of the human sacrifice, how do you get the spirit of Jesus inside you? How do you be one with God? You eat his flesh. And drink his blood. And so cannibalism is not only, you know, it's a taboo. It's part of religious ceremonies. It's, it's baked into humanity. So why are we fascinated with someone like Jeffrey Dahmer? Not only did he break the taboos, not only we have a sick fascination with how he got away with it and all those things. It, it reaches something deeper than just the shock of murder, I think. It's, it's the fascination of this guy wasn't just a thrill killer. There was something deeply disturbing about him. And we should talk about, you know, when you, they call him the Milwaukee monster, the Milwaukee cannibal. Did he grow up like that? You know, there's that line about if you could travel back in time and kill Hitler when he was a baby, would you do that? And well, he's just a baby, right? The baby hasn't done anything wrong yet. And when you go back in for the history of Jeffrey Dahmer, you know, he um, has been studied enough where you can start at the beginning and, and how he grew up. So Jeffrey Dahmer grows up, um, he's born in Wisconsin in 1960. West Dallas. Yes. And then his father has to finish his studies uh, at the University of Iowa. And so his parents end up going to Iowa so his dad can finish his studies in chemistry. His father's a chemist. And then he gets a job in Ohio. And so he moves around as a kid. His father, Lionel Dahmer, is a chemist. And he moves around, born in Wisconsin, moves to Iowa. Then he's real young. He moves to Ohio. Already, his mother is showing signs of mental illness. She's drinking a lot. Uh, That's how she's coping with her feelings, her and Lionel are fighting a lot. His childhood doesn't seem to be the happiest to start out with. As a kid, he starts being fascinated with animal bones. He calls them his fiddlesticks. Is, that's what his, his younger brother, David, said. That uh, he was fascinated with, with how, how animals are put together. And so on the Ohio property where there was like a big yard behind it and it went into a wooded area, they would often find animal bones. And Dahmer was, a young Dahmer was fascinated with animal bones and, and fascinated with how the animals were put together. And so he asked his dad, like, how do we save the animal bones? And his dad taught him how to bleach those bones. So you could keep them and, you know, as you'd make a, a model of an animal skeleton, and he would do that with small animals. And often there's a crawl space under the property as well where he would go and he'd, sometimes he'd put his little collection of fiddlesticks when he's a little kid. Now they often say with serial killers that they, you know, the first, you know, what's the first sign that somebody's a serial killer, Jeff? Animal sacrifice or... Right. Killing animals, doing something horrible to animals. Yeah. Um, Dahmer said he never hurt animals on purpose or anything, but there was one point that he did stick a dog's head like on a pike. And he said he didn't do that out of any kind of cruelty. He says, 
That was done just as a prank. I found a dog and I cut it open just to see what the insides looked like. And for some reason, I thought it'd be a fun prank to stick the head on the stake and set it out in the woods. I brought one of my friends back to look at it and said I'd stumbled upon that in the woods just for shock value. It wasn't a cult or anything. It was just a prank. And so that's the one time he admitted to like killing an animal and he did it not specifically for the sake of killing. He did it kind of to screw with his friends. So we already see at such a young age kind of a disconnect with the living or having care because most kids that age would be very loving and nurturing, but <laughs> something was missing at a young age already. In, in a couple of ways here. And, and I think, number one, the callousness towards the life of the animal. And number two, the not understanding, like the prank, like how that a friend would react. And he, you know, he had trouble with friendships, his, you know, his entire life. He's not that close to anybody. And you see from a very early age, like if he thinks that's as good of a deal, like we think like a whoopee cushion is funny or something like that. Or you, you know, you, what do you do? Like you, the circle game where you play a circle <laughs> game and somebody punches you in the arm. Like, okay, that's a prank. Shoving a dog's head on a stake is a little bit different, I think. And, and you know, that's when he's real young. As he gets older, uh, he discovers drinking early too. And so, and, and I did not realize this, that he started drinking heavily in high school. And so he would be in high school, he would arrive drunk. And I know that drinking culture in the 1970s, when he was a teenager, I mean, you didn't have to be 21 years old. Things were more loosey-goosey and stuff like that. But, you know, he would be caught with alcohol at school. And one time he told teachers that it was his medicine. He's like, oh, I need it. So he's drinking to, as a social lubricant to try to reach out to people. He's, you know, he starts drinking really early. And he's, his friends talk about that, and the people that knew him in high school. There even was a, a comic book made uh, just, a, just a few years ago. It was made about one of his high school friends, and he just describes him. He was a nobody. One of those shy kids who turned into social invalids when that first blast of adolescence hit, meekly accepted their fate, and became invincible. It's my belief that Dahmer didn't have to wind up a monster, that all those people didn't have to die horribly, if only the adults in his life hadn't been so inexplicably, unforgivably, incomprehensibly clueless and or indifferent. Once Dahmer kills, however, and I can't stress this enough, my sympathy for him ends. He could have turned himself in after the first murder. He could have put a gun to his head. Instead, he and he alone chose to become a serial killer and spread misery to countless people. There are a surprising number out there who view Jeffrey Dahmer as some kind of anti-hero, a bullied kid who lashed back at the society that rejected him. This is nonsense. Dahmer was a twisted wretch whose depravity was almost beyond comprehension. Pity him, but don't empathize with him. And that was from my friend Dahmer. Written by a guy whose pen name is Durf Backdurf. <laughs> Backdurf is his real uh, last name. And he ends up being a, uh, a writer in Ohio. And that was the graphic novel. Mm -hmm. And so, and they eventually made a movie of my friend Dahmer as well. And that's the description. And that's what he's saying. He's like, yes, pity him. He was awkward, discovered alcohol at an early age, troubled, didn't have a lot of friends. But he, he went to prom. It's funny, his prom date 
uh, when people interviewed her, she's like, well, he was nice enough, but he, he didn't seem like he wanted to be there. Which we find out fairly early that he wasn't interested in girls. Right. So he's not necessarily interested in going to prom with a woman. And that's another reason, too. It's also the attitude towards homosexuality in the 1970s is very different than the attitudes towards homosexuality today. We're 50, 50 years later, we're talking about. And so when you think you're discovering something about yourself that's looked down upon by other people, and, and once again, we're not trying to, you know, it's sympathy, like he says, pity him, but don't empathize with him. As, as uh, my friend Dahmer said, is that he's going through a difficult time. His parents weren't getting along. They divorce, you know, right at the end of high school. And what happens is, you know, they divorce. His mom gets custody of the younger brother. Uh, his dad goes away for a while. Dahmer is at his parents' house alone for a little while after high school. And this is still in Ohio. And he's drinking a lot. He's smoking dope. And he ends up uh, driving down the street one day and he sees a hitchhiker. And this is a hitchhiker not wearing a shirt. He feels an attraction. This is what he talks about later in his confession. He feels an attraction towards him. He's bare-chested and good-looking guy, Stephen Hicks. Stephen Hicks is a few years older. He's a hitchhiker on his way to a concert. Dahmer picks him up. Says, sure, let's hang out. Takes him back to his parents' house in Ohio. They hang out for a bit. Now, Stephen Hicks isn't gay. Dahmer's attracted to him. Uh, they have a couple beers, and Hicks wants to leave. It's like, well, he's got to get going on to his next thing, and he, you know, just get picked up, and he's a hitchhiker. He wants to move on. And so when he wants to leave, something happens inside Dahmer who's drunk, and doesn't, he doesn't want to be alone. He doesn't want this guy to leave him. And so he's got uh, some weights in his room, and he takes the barbell and smashes Stephen Hicks over the head and ends up killing him. And then stays with him a little bit, uh, eventually pleasures himself over the dead body, and so this is his first murder. And it's out of a drunken sense of desperation that he didn't want this person to leave. And it ends up haunting him for a long time. Now he's a murderer. It has entered his thoughts. And he'll end up thinking about it for the next several years before he starts doing it again. Now, interestingly enough... Uh, when we talk about people who might think that that house where Jeffrey Dahmer committed his first murder might be haunted, you go to 2009, and the new owner of that house is a guy named Chris Butler, and he buys the house because it's got a cool wooded space in the back, and he wants it to make loud music. And so... Does he know about the history of the house when he, he buys does. it? And so, right. And so that the realtor is like, okay you know, here's why the house is so cheap. He's like, I have to tell you that this is where Jeffrey Dahmer murdered his first victim. And the owner's not bothered by that at all. And National Public Radio does a story about a ghost hunt that they did at uh, Chris Butler's house. And he goes, 
Well, interestingly enough, all the gear that was in the vicinity of the crawl space had malfunctioned. So the place that, and this is also where Dahmer hides uh, Stephen Hicks' body right after he kills him. It was working when we left, but machines stopped, batteries went dead, and my computer system showed a two gigabyte sound file, a huge file, but it refused to open. The ghost hunters didn't find anything conclusive on the few machines that had functioned properly, but it really didn't matter because I know the house is haunted. Maybe not by ghosts, but by something much, much scarier. It's haunted by reality, by the unbelievable horror that humans are capable of. And so, I mean, eventually Dahmer, when his dad comes back, he's like, you got to do something with your life. I mean, Jeffrey Dahmer's not a dumb guy. He en- he has enrolled in Ohio State University, and he doesn't make it very long at Ohio State either. He's still drinking all the time. He's still he's partying too much. He's still a loner, has trouble making friends. And we talk about places that, well, you know, once any any place a serial killer has been is going to have a legend associated with it, right? Sure. And so with Dahmer, his old dorm room is the one that where, you know, people said that now there's legends associated with it. And this is from like the Ohio State University paper in the early 2000s. So Dahmer lived in a room in a place called Moral Tower. Trevor Tompkins, second year student. I had more nightmares while living in Moral than I've experienced at any other point in my life. One night I woke up and nearly yelled out because I thought someone was staring at me from my closet and was moving towards me. Samantha Mikulski, Ohio State University student, says, The first time I heard it was from my dad, after he went on a tour with my older sister. Before I actually moved into Moral, I was told they shut down the 13th floor because it was so creepy to live on. So You already see the urban legends kind of forming right, around. Because they know that Jeffrey Dahmer went there. They know that's the dorm that he stayed in. So now it's haunted by his ghost. Do they know the room? Do they have that pinpointed or is they, it just that, you know, they do know the moral. room, but it wasn't in that particular article. Okay. Kind of thing. But I'm, I'm sure the kids at Ohio state know, you know, know the room or at least there now is a legendary room associated. And it'd with just it. be a good freshman prank. You know, Dahmer <laughs> lived in this room, right? Right. Right. Don't forget. And that's a great Halloween prank. New kids coming into the tower for the sure. first time too. He eventually you know, leaves Ohio State University. He doesn't make it to the end of his first semester. What's he going to do? Well, what do you do when you don't have many job prospects? College kind of washes out. Next thing you go is you enroll in the military. And that's what he does. Uh, He enrolls and then gets sent to Germany. And um, he's, you know, he's in the military for a couple of years, spends time in Germany, a bunch of stories about his time in Germany come out after he's been arrested for murder and stuff. One of his uh, people he served with is Preston Davis, and he served with Dahmer in Germany. He says in a blog post that came out just a couple of years ago, in July of 1979, Jeffrey Dahmer was sent to my unit, HHC, the 68th Armor. From the beginning, Jeffrey was a very racist individual. He was in his room in the barracks drinking beef eaters gin and using racial epithets. He often would talk about his father taught him that he was better than everybody else. And then later in a in TV interview, Preston Davis character says that he was out with Dahmer during a field exercise in Belgium. The car breaks down and they're stuck for three days. 
Somewhere in that time frame, I was drugged and assaulted, he says. And this is something that Dahmer's never admitted to. He said he didn't attack anybody in Germany. The reason he didn't kill me, he said after I left, I should have killed that bad word for a black person when I had the chance. But that was the reason he couldn't kill me. We were out in the middle of Belgium. He had no idea how to get back to Germany. Now, see, he said he blocked that. Preston Davis said he blocked that memory out until 2009. But it came back to him. He was ends up being interviewed about it, talks about it in a blog post. And then also, uh, one of his other um, people that he served with had said that Dahmer would often beat him, tie him to the bed, and things like that. Now, Dahmer said that nothing like that ever happened in the military. He didn't confess to anything like that. But some people that knew him in the military have now come out and said that he was doing these sadistic things to him. And that he would sit there, get drunk, and say things like, I killed a guy in Ohio. I killed someone back in Ohio. He did, you know, when he talked in his confessions and interviews, he did mention that the murder of Stephen Hicks would often replay itself for him. But he didn't mention that he started getting sadistic on his bunkmates and stuff like that in Germany. But now that's what they say. So... He ends up getting kicked out of the army for drinking too much. Whenever he's off duty, he's wasted. And people said that, that, you know, just like Preston Davis said, when he got drunk, that's when he got nasty. That's when he starts throwing out racial slurs. And, and this is something in his life. Like this, this problem with alcohol is something that is, you know, keeps coming back and back. That he's a complete and total alcoholic. But he ends up getting honorably discharged. So they, they say that, you know, they kick him out before the end of his contract is up. But he gets discharged for drinking too much, gets a plane ticket to go anywhere in the country. He doesn't want to go back to Ohio because he's just going to have to go back and, you know, see his dad, who say he washed up in the army. And so he's, this is what he says, he's tired of the cold and decides to go to Miami Beach. Moves to Miami Beach, Florida. And this is in uh, 1980. Interesting thing about this. So he's in Miami Beach, Florida, and he's got a, he gets a job, but he spends most of his money on drinking, eventually gets locked out of the apartment that he's living in because he's not paying rent because he's spending it all on drinking. Spends money on booze, sleeps on the beach. So escapes winter, sleeps on the beach, and... One interesting thing is he is living in Florida during the time that Adam Walsh is abducted and murdered. So if you've ever seen America's Most Wanted, the host, John Walsh, is the father of a 12-year-old boy in Florida who gets abducted in the early 80s and there's a manhunt and they try to find him and everything and then they eventually only find the head of Adam Walsh. They even, they made a, you know, like a TV movie about it with Daniel J. Trevanti, the police chief from uh, Hill Street Blues playing Adam Walsh called Adam's Story. And it's a horrible tragedy. It's the kind of thing that when you talk about the 1980s and stranger danger and the, the horror of child abductions and that whole kids in the back of milk cartons kind of thing. I mean, Adam Walsh is the, kid on the back of the milk carton until they find his body or find his head. 
and it's a you know tragedy and it's, it's a horrible thing. And so he's living in Florida during the time. Now, there is a, a guy who lives in Florida named Willis Morgan who wrote a book called Frustrated Witness. And he says he saw Dahmer in a Florida mall the same day Adam Walsh was abducted. He said that some guy was like talking to him in a radio shack and approaching him and stuff. And he said he thought it was weird. And then uh, years later, he's watching TV and he sees Jeffrey Dahmer on the television and he goes, that's the, that's the weirdo from the mall uh, the day that Adam Walsh was abducted. So he writes this book and comes out and he's trying to convince people that Jeffrey Dahmer was Adam Walsh's killer. John Walsh says that he doesn't believe it at all, doesn't think Dahmer did it. And the FBI, when they are interviewing Dahmer, even ask him about it. And they say, did you kill Adam Walsh? And he's like, I had nothing to do with that. So um, I'd never heard that before about it, that they linked that they linked that murder to, like, because he was there. But someone who was that young, though, would have been kind of outside what he was interested in. And so he comes back, he leaves Miami Beach, moves back to Ohio eventually because he's got no money, he's sleeping on the beach, gets fired from his job again, and just has to come back home. And once he's in Ohio, he's just sitting around drinking. And his dad's like, you gotta, they got to figure out a way to turn his life around. Sends him to live with his grandmother back in West Dallas. He always liked his grandma, had affection for her, and they thought that living with her, she could help him. Well, once he gets to West Dallas, it's not too long after that he's arrested for indecent exposure at Wisconsin State Fair Park. He's touching himself in front of a bunch of little kids. And so... Even though he's living with his grandma, he's trying to go to church, trying to do the right thing, there's still some kind of sexual impulsivity about him. He's got to engage in this kind of behavior. So he gets arrested, you know, when he comes back to West Dallas, still living at his grandmother's house. 1985, he gets a job at the Ambrosia Chocolate Factory in downtown Milwaukee, or, you know, and... And this is, you know, the job he's going to have until he eventually gets caught. Graveyard shift. He's working at 11 o'clock at night, six days a week. It's quite a schedule. Yeah, I was going to say. So he's working the whole time. Now, he starts trying to connect to other men. And he does that with visiting bathhouses. Starts visiting bathhouses. And when he's there, though, he's drugging the other men, like I'll bring a drink out or sneak a drug into what they're drinking, kind of knock them out. And then he starts touching them while they're knocked out. He doesn't get banned from going to the bathhouse until it happens 12 times. Wow. 12 times. After the first time you would think, ban this guy from the bathhouse because he's drugging dudes and molesting them. But it's 12 times. You know, also, you know, when you think about the 1980s, it's also a very, you know, different time for, you know, than today is for homosexuals and gay guys meeting each other. It's all very secret. It's still, 
it's it's not as accepted as today. I remember gay marriage and the whole the idea about that being legal and stuff. That doesn't even take hold until the late 2000s. Mm-hmm. And also in the 1980s, you have the entire um, you know AIDS scare that's going on. You know when you think about the Milwaukee gay scene in the 1980s that Jeffrey Dahmer was part of, um, and he's going to these bars and he's going to these bathhouses and, and people are keeping it to themselves. Let me read to you what one of the bartenders who ended up seeing him at the bars ended up saying about the scene. This is from the Milwaukee Public Radio uh, interview in June of 2020. Scott Gunkel was a bartender at the 219 Club where Dahmer was a regular customer. Although he met Dahmer a few times, Gunkel found him unremarkable. What Gunkel remembers vividly is how AIDS was ravaging the community. One year, I went to 19 funerals, and it was just devastating. Every other week, you'd find somebody that passed away, and I would talk to people who knew with certain people and say, where's so-and-so? And they'd be like, oh, he passed away, or he's sick, and he's in the hospice. So that's, Gunkel recalls like the 1980s Milwaukee gay scene, and that AIDS epidemic is ripping through it, and then plus a lot of these the people who are going out, they're still in the closet and they're going under code names. So Dahmer, you know, when they talk about like how he's picking people up, why did they not realize that these people were missing? Well, a lot of times they might've just thought they left town or maybe they died or, you know, maybe they were gone. And so the idea that why he was able to get away with a lot of these things is because a lot of that scene was already underground. You know, why does it take him 12 times to get kicked out of the bathhouse when he's doing something completely illegal and immoral and, you know, to other people. And it's already underground scene of, of people using code names, meeting each other and being very secretive. So when, unlike today, when, People are free to feel more out in the open. It's definitely not like that in 1980s Milwaukee. So I guess the reasoning behind that would be they didn't want to draw attention to their lifestyle, more or less. Right. They don't want to draw any unnecessary attention to the bathhouse. Yeah. They wanted to keep what they did under wraps, and that actually worked against them. Absolutely. And so Dahmer would use that you know, to to not get caught. He doesn't want to get caught. And in 1985, that hasn't, he hasn't been caught yet. He hasn't killed anybody else yet. Stephen Hicks is still his first victim. 1986, he gets arrested once again for public masturbation. This time it's in front of two 12-year-old boys. He says he's just urinating out in the public, but the kids were 12 years old. They see him doing what he's doing. And they say something to him, like having a good time. And he's like, goes over and says something like, you bet. You know, really, it's, it's obvious what he's doing. And he undergoes counseling and, and evaluation. His doctor, uh, Kathy Boise, writes, quote, could become a psychopathic deviant, sociopath with schizoid tendencies. His deviant behavior will at least continue in some form, if not be exacerbated. Without some type of intervention, which is supportive, his defenses will probably be inadequate and he could gravitate toward further substance abuse with possible subsequent increased masochism or sadistic tendencies and behaviors. That's what we would call 
foreshadowing. <laughs> right. And so 1986, he has to undergo a psychiatric evaluation after he's caught not just indecent exposure, it's public masturbation. Like this goes on to just being, I mean, and he talks about, he admits to exposing himself in several places. It's just he gets caught in 1982, he gets caught in 1986. And then he's got a regular therapist that he goes to who he never opens up to. And so he's always, it's a court-ordered therapy, but then he's got to go to a psychiatric evaluation. He comes to the University of Wisconsin. And this fits in with an urban legend in Madison of the, in, in the now it's the Boss Meadery. At the time, it was the Gardner Bakery. And there is a particular, uh, in the Gardner Bakery, in the elevator, right? The elevator and also apparently in the basement, but that hasn't been verified. There is Dahmer signature in the elevator and also graffiti in the basement. And the graffiti has the date, like it's, it's like March 1987. It coincides with, I believe, after he was let off for the second indecent exposure incident. But that would match up to if he had to come to University of Wisconsin to undergo a psychiatric evaluation, because Dr. Boise was University of Wisconsin clinical psychology department. If he had to come to Madison, then that does fit up with a date that he might be here. Sure. Um, and there, there are rumors that that may have been a gay club at one point, and I haven't been able to substantiate that. a place that. where people meeting at the, I mean, because it was the Gardner club. Bakery yep. um, for a long time. And so, I mean, now it's a bar, I mean, a place where people can buy mead and they're right about to, now they're about to um, take it's it and redeveloped. Yeah. And redevelop it into an apartment complex and stuff. And I don't know if they're going to take down the Jeffrey Dahmer was here kind of thing. So at least when you were looking into the timeline of when he could have come to Madison or had to come to Madison, he did have to come to do undergo psychiatric evaluation in that time frame, court ordered. It fits. And so, uh, and see, see that doctor. And this is from our friend Scott Marcus's blog. And he's voices from the grave. And he says, quote, Dahmer worked in the building when it was a bakery. So the story is that the name date were written by him while he was there. Totally unverified as far as I'm aware. That's in the, in the quote. I'm not sure about whether the elevator is open to the public or if it's locked. We ended up getting pictures of it from someone who was performing at the boss meadery. And so she was able to get down there. And were, were you able to get down in there, Jeff? I wasn't able to get down in there, but I do have a friend that went on recon and okay. she took a picture in the elevator. I have it on my page at Badgerland Legends. Okay. And it's the... I think it's from March of uh, 21. Okay. And so there is, you know, the rumors that... There's the rumor that he worked in the building when it was a bakery, but we don't have... I mean, that's not in the official timeline or anything like that at Jeffrey no, Dahmer. No, it seems like he was employed throughout with ambrosia right. but may have other reasons too right and so so that's why i was thinking when i was looking for things on it i was like oh well he did have to come to madison to go undergo psychiatric evaluation and it would be after the exposure incident happened so that would match up um if he had to come here for something and then stop by there uh but either way it's only a few days after his last mandated therapy session in milwaukee with the doctor that he wasn't comfortable with and wasn't opening up to that he commits his first murder. This is 1987. So he goes out, meets a guy who was a, you know, a, like a, a cook at George Webb. 
gay guy that come to Milwaukee, starting a, you know a, a new life, gets a job at, uh, in downtown, working at a George Webb. And so for anybody outside of Wisconsin, George Webb is a 24-hour diner. It's a burger joint. Yeah, burger joint. It's where you can get breakfast all night. It's where, you know, and so George Webb is like a Milwaukee institution of these 24-hour diners. And so Dahmer meets a guy who's working at George Webb downtown, and they go out and have fun together. You know, like a couple of guys having a night. They go back to this hotel downtown called the Ambassador Hotel. And they go to the Ambassador and they both get separate rooms, but uh, his name is Stephen Toomey, is the guy that Dahmer was hanging out with. And so they end up getting drunk, hanging out together. Now, Dahmer can't remember what happens next. He just remembers he wakes up the next day and Stephen Toomey is dead on the bed. He doesn't remember how it happened, but he wakes up and there's blood everywhere, ends up going to clean himself up goes to a nearby store, buys a suitcase, and that's how he gets Stephen Toomey's body out of the Ambassador Hotel. And this is his first murder in Wisconsin. This is the first time he's killed someone, and he can't remember it. Now, that's his only murder at the Ambassador Hotel. Um, I've stayed there. It's nice. <laughs> I haven't seen any hauntings or anything like that. You can stay in the murder room right. at the Ambassador. So I mean, I don't know if you request it, if you call up the ambassador and say like, hey, just wanted to see if we could stay in the murder room, but I'm, you can find it. And one of the guys who I'm sure knows the room and can tell you is Chad Lewis, who is a, a fantastic author. And Chad Lewis was interviewed by Milwaukee Magazine about hauntings at the Ambassador Hotel, specifically to do with Jeffrey Dahmer. And he says, ever since then, people have seen what appears to be Dahmer himself or a man covered in blood walk through the rooms and disappear into a wall. So maybe that's what you can see if you end up staying at the ambassador in the murder room. But at the time, Dahmer's still living at his grandma's house. And that's why he took this guy out to the ambassador hotel so they could get together. But he's living downstairs at the house and he does have some privacy and his grandma leaves him alone. Cause, and also remember, he's coming back in the middle of the night. He's got the graveyard shift job. So she's used to him getting up, leaving before 11 o'clock and coming back at seven. And so he's a night owl already. And not too long after he kills Stephen Toomey, this is when he starts his murder spree. And the first people he kills are at his grandma's house. Starts going out to gay bars, propositioning people on the street you know, whoever he sees and asks him to come back with him. Meets a 14-year-old Native American prostitute by the name of James Doctator. That's his first victim at his grandma's house. That's in 1987. March 24th, 1988, he meets Richard Guerrero. The same thing. Kills him in his grandma's house. Cuts him up. Hides the body. April 23rd, his grandma hears him with someone. She says, is that you, Jeff? And he tries to pretend he's alone. But the guy's with him and the guy's unconscious. And so Dahmer can't kill him. So he ends up dropping the unconscious guy off at the county hospital because his grandma knows that he's home. She, is that you, Jeff? And she later says that she thought he was with somebody. And so um, he kind of figures that and ends up not killing the guy, panics, drops him off at the hospital. 
1988, his grandmother asked him to leave. He's still drinking too much. He's keeping weird hours. Sometimes there's weird smells from the basement and dead bodies and him, you know, dissolving the bodies and getting rid of them. Uh, 1988, he moves to a, a different apartment. Grandmother asks him to leave. He's living there, working at Ambrosia Chocolate for a while. 1989, he's arrested again. It's two days after he moves to that apartment <laughs> that his grandma told him to go to. He can't wait two days, you know, he can't wait a week, two days, and he's already trying to do his thing where he lures somebody back to the apartment and then he's going to kill him and then have sex with a body. And so, but he does it to a 13-year-old boy. And so he offers the boy coming back, you know, starts touching him, and then the boy escapes. He gets caught, and now he's in for, you know, drugging a 13-year-old boy and molesting him. He goes to his dad, and his dad hires attorney Gerald Boyle, who comes again later in the story, to represent him. And he doesn't go to jail. He doesn't go to jail for luring a 13-year-old boy to his house, drugging him, and sexually assaulting him. That's terrible. He gets a suspended sentence. So, and he, remember, he's already had two indecent exposure things. So he's already got a record for sexual deviancy. With minors, and this was an assault on a minor. Right. And so he gets a, so Gerald Boyle's a great attorney, gets a suspended sentence for him. And now he's on parole, you know, kind of thing. And he, he's got to move back to his grandmother's house. And then at his grandmother's house, March 25th, 1989, he lures a guy named Anthony Sears back to his place, does the same thing, drugs him, kills him, sex with the body or over the body or the things. But the, it's, the, it's the dead body that's part of the equation. He keeps the head and the genitals of Anthony Sears while he finds a way to dispose the rest of it. The, you know, bleaching, he uh, bleaches the flesh off with the chemicals and then disposes of the bones. Um, but this is the first time that he keeps a souvenir of his kill. A trophy, a memento. Mm -hmm. That's Anthony Sears in March of 1989. So a year later, he leaves his grandma's house again, 1990, moves to the Oxford Apartments, and this will be eventually where he's caught in the apartment 213. And once he leaves his grandma's house, like that's when all bets are off. So this is in 19, May 14th, 1990 is when he moves. It's a week, and he's already on it again. Raymond Smith, uh, a male prostitute who's not gay, but will hustle for money also known as Ricky Beaks or Cash D, like he had, I think Cash D had a, a tattoo in his chest of it. And after he kills Raymond Smith this time, he buys a Polaroid and sets up the dead body for pictures. So now it's the body and he, he's, his fantasy grows to now he poses them in pictures. And then he masturbates over the dead body and stuff like that. And then the pictures. And then he saves the skull of Raymond Smith and spray paints it. So now he's keeping trophies. Anthony Sears is his first one. Raymond Smith is his next one. So he's moved from necrophilia to now taking the bodies and creating like a fantasy out of it. 
So it's not just the sexual gratification of the dead body. Now it's, I'm going to save this. I'm going to save it in pictures, and I'm going to save the skull. One month later in June, he kills Edward Smith. September, kills Ernest Miller. It's 1990. He's Ernest Miller now, as he talks about, he takes pictures of the body and has a disembodied head with him for a while. And he's talking and kissing the head like he's there. Like, the, you know, like Ernest Miller is still with him. Ernest Miller is also the first one that he decides to experiment with cannibalism. So he saves the heart, biceps, and parts of the legs to eat. And so he intends to keep the skeleton of it. So now he's gone full from, you know, someone who killed Stephen Hicks because he was afraid to be lonely and didn't want him to leave, to now he's killing people, talking to the disembodied heads and kissing them like a, you know, and now preparing to make that, you know, part of himself by eating parts of the body. So it's almost like the psychologist that diagnosed him pretty much foretold with schizophrenic breaks and psychopathic tendencies, socio- sociopathy. And his defenses, you know, she's like, his, eventually his defenses will be let down and yeah. then he'll so engage in these things. It's almost like she, she predicted what exactly was going to happen. Right. And so then we, in September that year, September 25th, he kills a guy named Dave Thomas, but that's, he ends up not being attracted to him. So it's not somebody he wants to keep the body or have sex with the body. He kills him because he thought he could get in trouble. Because like Dave Thomas came back with him. And once he drugged him, he's like, well, I'm just gonna... he killed him basically because he didn't want to get caught. So Dave Thomas isn't part of the fantasy. He's part of Dahmer needing to survive. 1991, the murders accelerate. Here's Jeffrey Dahmer's interview. Nothing else gave me pleasure towards the end. Nothing, not the normal things, especially near the end when the things just started piling up, person after person, during the last six months. I could not get pleasure from going out to eat. I just felt very empty, frustrated, and driven to continue doing it. None of these are excuses for what I did, but those are the feelings I had in those last months, really intensive. For some reason, I kept doing it. I knew my job was in jeopardy around February. All I would have to do was just stop for several months at a time and space it out, but it didn't happen that way. I was just driven to do it more frequently and more frequently until it was just too much, complete overload. I couldn't control it anymore. So it went from an impulse to snowballing into just a compulsion that he couldn't rid himself of or control himself. Yeah, he can't stop. In the last six months, February of 1991, he kills 17-year-old Curtis Strauder. April 7th, kills Errol Lindsay. Now, this is his first attempt at... You know, before his fantasy is the dead body, his fantasy is the complete control of a human being and then being able to do whatever he wants with it sexually. Well, now he wants to try to create a zombie to see if he can do it with a, with a person still living, but take all control away from the person and completely dominate them while they're still alive. Errol Lindsay, he drills a hole in his head and tries to pour hydrochloric acid into his brain. But Errol Lindsay wakes up, just says, oh, I got a horrible headache kind of thing. And then Dahmer realizes he's got to kill him. 
So his first experiment doesn't work. And so he ends up killing Errol Lindsay. May 23rd, he kills a man named Tony Hughes. Three days later, he runs into a boy named Conorak Synthesome Phone, 14-year-old Laotian immigrant. So May 26, 1991, Dahmer offers him money to take nude pictures. Synthesome Phone comes home with Dahmer, and then uh, Dahmer gives him halcyon in a drink, a sedative, knocks him out. He wants to make a zombie out of Conorak Synthesim Phone too. So he drills a hole in the back of his cranium and uses a hydrochloric acid solution. So he uses more water, less hydrochloric acid. It's an experiment now. He's using his chemistry knowledge to try to turn this guy into a zombie, this 14-year-old boy. So Dahmer got to go to the drugstore to get some stuff. Synthesim Phone wakes up. Dahmer's gone. Makes it to the streets. He's running outside. He's bleeding. He's naked. Three women see him. They call the police. And the police let him go. They let him go back to Jeffrey Dahmer because Dahmer comes up and says, oh, my boyfriend, I'm sorry. Uh, You know, he's just drunk. You know, what are you going to do? He's like, he's drunk. He's going crazy. I'll take him back. And the real tragedy here is that he's the brother of the kid that Dahmer was arrested for molesting the previous year. Wow. And so, and, and Jeffrey Dahmer didn't know that. And so, you know, it's, it's crazy. Like, why would the police do that? You know, why, how could they be fooled? And when you're talking about the Milwaukee crime rate in the 1980s, here's from a 1990 Wisconsin Office of Justice Assistance report. Wisconsin's Quote, increase in the homicide rate has not been as great as the number of incidents, but it has increased 246% in the last 30 years and 52% in the last 10 years. So murders have gone up 50% between 1980 and 1990. Milwaukee's proportion of Wisconsin homicides was 40% in 1984, and it's 70% in 1990. So police are dealing with a gigantic murder boom in the late 80s and early 90s. And then also there's the fact that under the the police chief in the 1980s, the Milwaukee police were known for harassing homosexuals, which is why they, the scene was underground, which is why the gay bars, people were using false names, which is, you know, why they didn't report things to the police. They didn't come there because they didn't think the police were going to take care of them. New York Times, August 2nd, 1991. Tension heightened today as the chief of police announced that unspecified departmental charges had been filed against the three officers at the center of the public's anger. The announcement by Chief Philip Ariola followed the department's release of recorded conversations between a woman, 911 emergency operators, and police officers on May 27th, two months before Mr. Dahmer was arrested and the horrors inside his apartment were discovered. The woman reported seeing a bleeding boy staggering alone in the street. But when officers arrived, Mr. Dahmer was able to convince them that the boy was his drunken friend and they left. At one point on the tape, an officer tells the dispatcher that, quote, an intoxicated Asian naked male was returned to his sober boyfriend, quote, then there is laughter. Oh, that's Um, heartbreaking because it could have all been over right there. It could have all been over right there. And they, you know, those police officers eventually fired 
there's a lawsuit and they get rehired, but there's a couple, you know, they have to fight for it for a couple of years in the lawsuit and they did get disciplined uh, by the city of Milwaukee. You know, when you think about the context of, you know, what they were dealing with and they were, and so the police didn't, weren't supposed to be, they were worried that they were going to be harassing homosexuals. And so they didn't do their job because they were kind of like, okay, we'll stay out of this. And Dahmer was using that. You know, he, he used the fact that they didn't have a good, that community didn't have a great relationship with the Milwaukee Police Department in order to get away with murder. Literally. I mean, he also did that in t- too in... In Milwaukee PD had no idea that there was a serial killer on the loose. Right. There was, there was no dead bodies found. There was people missing, but... Considering their social status or status in the community, they might not have been taken seriously. Right, not a priority to the cops at the time. They had a huge homicide rate. And things that they're dealing with already, they're already failing on that level. And now, so missing people that might have moved or part of a community that is marginalized at the time, um, the cops weren't taking care of them. And so that's... Dahmer used that to his advantage. And so a month later, after he kills Conrad Synthesim Foam, he travels to Chicago, brings the guy back up to his apartment, kills him, Matt Turner. July 5th, less than a week later, he goes to Chicago again, brings back Jeremiah Weinberger, tries to make him into a zombie. This time, he uses boiling water instead of acid. Also does not work. So then he just strangles him and kills him. July 15th, kills Oliver Lacey, drugs him, strangles him, has sex with the corpse, puts Lacey's head and heart in the fridge and a skeleton in the freezer. Now, while he's doing that, he takes a day off work. And because he took a leave day off work, this time he's fired. And he even says that when he admits that he's like, I knew I was in trouble at my job. All I had to do was wait, but he can't. July 19th, you know, he, once he finds out he gets fired, he goes out, kills another guy, Joseph Bradenhoff, puts his head in the fridge too. So once again, he's saving the heads now. These are his trophies. He's eating little parts of people. He's now taking trophies and he's killing people. In July, he kills three people alone. I mean, his MO, this is, this is eventually what his MO would become, his modus operandi, how he killed people. Lures people back with the promise of alcohol and money. Take pictures or just hang out with me. So he asked them to take pictures or make a porno with him, is what he said. um, And I'll pay you for it. And so they'd get to his house. He'd give them a drink. They'd put a movie on. And the movies he usually would put on would be The Exorcist 3 or Return of the Jedi. I mean, everybody loves Star Wars. So, but, you know, he's fascinated with Return of the Jedi because he loves the character of the Emperor. Uh, the power, the control of the Emperor. He loves the Exorcist 3, features the Gemini killer, who is possessed by the spirit of a murderer who is executed at the same time as, spoiler alert for the first Exorcist, Father Karras, who's one of the Exorcists, who, at the at the very end of the Exorcist film, Father Karras is... He tells the demon, take me, take me. 
and the demon jumps into his body, and when the demon jumps into his body, he jumps out the window and dies on the steps. These very famous steps in Georgetown in Washington, D.C., where people still go and take pictures at the Exorcist the steps. Scene, yeah. And so the, I, the plot of the Exorcist 3 is that the demon Pazuzu switches their souls at the last minute, and he puts the serial killer in Father Karras's body, and then... While the serial killer is in his body, then he possesses different people at an insane asylum and goes out and has them commit murders. So it's a serial killer possessed by the devil who goes out and commits horrible acts to people. Beheadings. There's several beheadings in the Exorcist 3, too. And so this is what they're watching. And they describe Dahmer watching these movies and kind of rocking back and forth. I think he was waiting for the sedatives and the drink to kick in. So, you know, that's the next thing is that he puts on the movie, the sedatives and the drink kick in, and then the person goes unconscious. Dahmer then performs sexual acts on the unconscious person. Now that he's got his fantasy of the person who he can completely control. And then once he does that, he strangles them to death. He keeps the corpse around for more sexual gratification. At this point, he starts taking pictures of the corpse, putting into su- suggestive positions. He's turning them into his pornographic playthings. He's putting them up like he's some kind of pornographer who's creating these, these tableaus, these sexual tableaus with his dead bodies. And after that, he dismembers the corpse, bleaches the bones. With some of the people, he tried eating little parts of the body. He wanted to keep the skull as a trophy. And then he puts the rest of the body. And at the time, I mean, sometimes he would go, you know, throw out the body and the bones and things. Um, but otherwise, he put the rest of the body in, in a 55-pound drum that he kept inside his apartment. So he has this gigantic garbage can full of dead bodies in his apartment, just just uh, just dissolving away, just this foul thing. And the neighbors said there were foul smells that came from the apartment. So they were smelling dead bodies. There was, you know, his last capture. This is July 1991. And this is just a couple days after Joseph Bredehoff. Uh Tracy Edwards is the guy. He's running on the streets. He sees the police and he says, some freak had handcuffed me. The police handcuffs key didn't work on there. So they're like, you know what? We'll take you back. We'll find the key and we'll get it. So Tracy Edwards agrees to go back to Jeffrey Dahmer's apartment with the police to see if they can find the key that worked. And what's interesting is Tracy Edwards said, like, well, if they could have just, if, if they could have opened the handcuffs, I would have just ran away. So he wouldn't have taken him back and tell him that this guy had tried this stuff. Uh, that tried to knock him out, um, that it attacked him kind of thing. He would have just taken off. So if Dahmer would have used a standard handcuff set that matched the police keys, because they're pretty universal. Sure. Then he may have. He could have continued. Continued. Right? Because the guy would have let him go. I mean, Tracy Edward wouldn't have pressed charges. This is the scene that the police come back in. This is from Brian Masters' book, The Shrine of Jeffrey Dahmer. He invited them in, holding the door open. 
The living room was small but pleasantly furnished with large, comfortable armchair, a healthy pot plant, and a tall pedestal. An oriental rug, blue curtains at the window, some fine pictures on the wall, and one framed picture of a naked male model. There was nothing seedy or squalid about the room. Rather, did it appear surprisingly neat and tidy for the neighborhood. Dahmer was vague but cooperative at first. He said he worked as a mixer at the Ambrosia Chocolate Factory downtown. What was the problem with the handcuffs, he was asked. Why not unlock them? Was he some kind of psycho? He acknowledged that he placed the handcuffs on Edwards, but could not say why. Edwards now went further. Dahmer had brandished a large knife at him, he said. Dahmer didn't react to this, but told the officers he thought the key to the handcuffs must be in the bedroom and pointed to the door. He invited Officer Mueller to go into the bedroom himself and retrieve the key, but then moved towards the door, as if he suddenly remembered something. He was then interrupted by Officer Routh, who told him to back off. Meanwhile, Mueller immediately noticed that there was indeed a large knife lying just beneath the bed, and that the top drawer of a chest was open, revealing scores of Polaroid photographs of naked men. He looked further and realized with some shock that many of them were pictures of severed heads, dismembered limbs, decomposing torsos, and from the evidence the decor in the pictures, it was clear that they were not commercially produced fakes, but they had actually been taken in the same bedroom. Incredulous, Mueller came back into the living room with photographs in his hand. These are real pictures, he told Roth. At that point, Dahmer seemed to come to his senses. Roth went to restrain him and the two men fell to the floor, struggling. The policeman was on top of Dahmer, holding one arm, but Dahmer was able to reach behind him and pinch Routh's thigh. Routh shouted in pain, and Mueller joined him to subdue Dahmer. They called another squad car, and Officer Chasseau turned up at 11.50 p.m. to find the suspect being pinned to the ground. He went back to his car for handcuffs, and Jeffrey Dahmer was duly placed under arrest. For him, it was the very end of a long road, but for the police, it had scarcely begun. Tracy Edwards told them that Dahmer had clapped his own handcuffs on him as he was approaching the refrigerator to get himself a beer, and had told him there was something in there that he would not believe. Ralph Mueller then opened the door of the refrigerator and saw, on the bottom shelf, a cardboard box containing the severed head of a black man, face upwards. He closed the door quickly. Dahmer, still being held to the ground, turned his head and muttered, For what I did, I should be dead. Wow. And so, interestingly enough, before the police close it off as a crime scene, you know, they, they see a severed head in there. There's a source at the police department that hears what's going on, and that source immediately calls a reporter to tell them, we found something. There's a serial killer in Milwaukee. Her name is Ann E. Schwartz. She eventually writes a book on Dahmer, and she's the only reporter who gets inside the apartment because she got there that night before it turned into a crime scene. Wow. She said, there was a smell to the apartment. I already knew that whoever lived there was saving body parts, and if you were familiar with the smell of death, when you smell that smell, you know what you're smelling. People ask how could residents not know what they were smelling, but people who lived there would never have been more concerned with other things. This apartment was in a neighborhood severely challenged by violent crime and poverty, and sometimes things went unnoticed there that would have been noticed in a different apartment in a different neighborhood. People pretty much kept to themselves in that building, and they wouldn't have get involved in anyone else's business. So she gets there, gets a description, it ends up making it into her book, it ends up coming out that these horrible things happened in this apartment you know this is this famous news footage that i saw the next morning hauling barrels out and yeah okay yeah right like a hazmat suit on as they haul these things out of the apartment and you're just like what's this and because she got in they knew some of the story of what they'd found and 
Dahmer doesn't even bother saying he's innocent. He goes in and starts confessing that night. He confesses to, you know, all of these murders. He confesses after to killing 17 people. So 16 in the Milwaukee area and then Stephen Hicks in Ohio. So this goes to trial within six months. By January of 1992, the, the Dahmer trial is on. The d- defense tries to say he's insane. They want to figure out, he already confessed to everything. So how are you going to get him the lightest sentence possible? The only way to say is he's insane. And they hire the same attorney that defended him before, Gerald Boyle. Now, Gerald Boyle goes up against the Milwaukee district attorney, Michael McCann. And, you know, years before, Gerald Boyle and Michael McCann ended up in an election for a district attorney that Gerald Boyle lost to Michael McCann. And this is they're coming at each other again. Round two. In the biggest Wisconsin trial, I mean, of the 1990s, you know, probably of the last 50 years. Probably ever, yeah. Right? And because this is covered all over the news. And so Gerald Boyle did a good job of getting Jeffrey Dahmer off of molesting a 13-year-old and drugging him so that maybe they can he can save him this time. They try to say he's insane. They use Return of the Jedi as the defense, that he thought he was the emperor. They use Exorcist Three as the defense, that he thought he was that serial killer with Satan in him, with, with a demon in him. And to prove that, uh, they show this jury of a drawing that he made of what he was fantasizing about creating in his apartment. And it was an altar of skulls. And he had drawn this for uh, the police when he was confessing. And he said, if you would have come in a couple of months, this is what you would have found in my apartment. He's got the skeletons he saved of uh, Miller and Lacey on either side of the thing. So he's got the full skeletons there. He's got a lamp with blue globe lights in the center. Like coming, like a lamp where... They, you know, they come off, look like a weeping willow with the blue globe lights at the end is how he drew it. It's over a black table where he has the skulls that he spray painted from the heads that he was saving in the refrigerator. So the painted skulls be over the black table. Now he sits in a black plush chair at the center, as he described it, like the emperor on his throne in Return of the Jedi. So when in Return of the Jedi, there's a scene where uh, the Emperor of the Evil Galactic Empire, he's getting Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader to fight each other. And, and the winner is going to join the Emperor and try to take over the galaxy or, you know, whatever. And he's this powerful, evil creature that can shoot lightning out of his hands and everything. And that he's got a throne on the Death Star. And that's what Dahmer was envisioning. So the back window is covered. Uh, in his temple with his altar of skulls and he's got a little wall plaque on the top with a painting of fluorescent eyes like a black light poster that he has in his weird temple and so they show the drawing and they're saying look this guy's crazy he's he wants to make a satanic altar and this is also during the trial where things get occultish so i mean when we go to the motivation of the murder, we'll talk a little bit of some kind of his, his um, diseases, but the, it pushes in a occult direction, and that is purposely on the defense, trying to make it sound like he's obsessed with these movies and he's insane, 
and he doesn't know the difference between reality and fiction. He thinks he is the emperor. He thinks he is the Gemini killer from the Exorcist 3. And that's what they're trying to use. Now, it's, it's not working. Obviously, the jury, I mean, they listen to his confession. His confession does not sound insane. He's very measured. He's in court. The thing that made Dahmer so nondescript to not catch him as a serial killer is also the thing that probably sealed his fate for an insanity defense. Normal, healthy-looking, attractive young man. He's a decent-looking guy. He looks well put together, even in court, even in that orange jumpsuit or whatever. He doesn't look like a madman. One reason why the police probably let Connor accent the phone go back into the apartment with him. A reason why people wouldn't suspect that he was going to kill them if he offered them $50 for sex or to take pictures. And they didn't suspect it when he gave them a drink, that that drink was going to be loaded with sedatives and that he'd strangle them and kill them and have sex with their bodies. And so he sentenced to 15 consecutive life sentences on the like bodies they could find. They can't find Stephen Toomey's body, the first person at the ambassador. And they, Stephen Hicks wasn't killed in Wisconsin. So he gets 15 consecutive life sentences. So he's, he's not going. He's not going to serve those out. He's going to die in prison. Like he's never going to leave prison. Errol Lindsay, one of his victims, his sister, and I remember watching this in the news, she famously screams at him. And, you know, he reads a, he reads a statement, not really of, I mean, of remorse, but he's saying, I'm sorry what it did to you, you know, to the families and stuff. He reads a statement before the sentencing, and then the families have a chance. And Errol Lindsay's sister just, I mean, you showed this in the news over and over again. Whatever your name is, Satan, I'm mad. This is how you act when you are out of control. I don't ever want to see my mother and have to go through this again. Never, Jeffrey. I hate you, motherfucker. I hate you. Just, you know, and I mean, I, I can hear it. You know, hear her screaming at him. Later, he goes to court in Ohio, uh, gets another life sentence added on. Stephen Hicks' mother, Martha, says on the, you know, in his sentencing that um, about her son. His smile could keep him out of trouble most of the time, but then he never met anyone before like this monster. I will never be able to pull the switch on the electric chair, but if I could, I would on this animal. I hope he serves all 800 years or whatever it is. So he gets there. Uh, he goes to prison. You know, what, what did the doctors really diagnose him with? And he's diagnosed with, with a couple of things. Borderline personality disorder. So... There's a lot of different information about what people think borderline personality disorder is. But according to the DSM-3, uh, the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, that's what psychiatrists are used to determine uh, at the time. That they on DSM-5 now, but there were three in um, 1991. That, you know, this is what they have to go down to determine what somebody actually is. So at least five of these following things are required. Number one, impulsivity or unpredictability, at least two areas that are potentially self-damaging, like spending, sex, gambling, substance use, shoplifting, overeating, physically self-damaging acts. Dahmer's there with sex and alcohol. A pattern of unstable and intense interpersonal relationships. 
Mark shifts in attitude, idealization, devaluation, manipulation, constantly using others for one's own ends. Inappropriate intense anger or lack of control of anger. An identity disturbance manifested by uncertainty about issues related to identity, such as self-image, gender identity, long-term goals or career choices, friendship patterns, loyalty. Instability. People that move from depression, irritability, anxiety. Intolerance of being alone. Frantic efforts to avoid being alone and being depressed when alone. Physically self-damaging acts like suicide or self-mutilation. Or chronic feelings of emptiness or boredom. Dahmer ticks like seven out of eight of those, you know? Borderline personality. Another one is schizotypal personality disorder. This is a personality disorder where there's oddities of thought, perception, speech, and behavior that are not severe enough to meet schizophrenia. So they're not hearing voices in the head. But there's enough disturbance in the thought that it may include being paranoid or magical thinking bizarre fantasies, or preoccupations. Perceptual disturbances may include recurrent illusions, depersonalization, or derealization. And so like a schizotypal personality disorder, this is his fantasies of having complete control. You know, the desiring of that dead body. Yeah, so it started out where he didn't want anybody to leave him. And that's with the Stephen Hicks. He hit him over the head with a, a dumbbell incapacitated him to prevent him from leaving, which devolved into drilling holes in people's skulls, pouring chemicals down there to incapacitate them, make them into, I guess, zombies. Right. So they couldn't leave him. That's exactly right. And not just couldn't leave him, but become part of him through eating parts of them. So he wants to save them so much that he will do that. And this is when we go back to the cannibalism we were talking about in the beginning, the endo-cannibalism, where you're not trying to punish an enemy, you're not... Trying to imbibe their life force almost. Right. You're you're trying to save them. You're trying to save a part of them. In Mm -hmm. fact, there's a certain tribe where um, they eat, they think that's the only way their ancestors can move on to the spirit world is is by imbibing some of them and that that's how they're saving them. Now, Dahmer is not doing anything out of uh, kindness for an ancestor or something. He's eating them because he literally wants to save them inside himself. And that's, he's splitting with reality. And when you think so, psychosis means the idea that they can't tell the difference between reality and fantasy Um, in the, the schizotypal personality disorder, like that, that's where the fantasies present themselves sometimes, but then it, instead of not knowing the difference between what's real and what's fake, they just are so into their fantasy that they'll do anything to get it. And then, of course, his paraphilia, which is the necrophilia. In the trial, uh, the prosecution brings in a, a famous serial killer trial doctor named Dr. Park Dietz. And he speculates that Dahmer's first masturbation experience when he's a young man combines with his fascination with dead animals. And around the same time, they're doing like a fetal pig dissection in school. And so he brings the pig's head home, like at the same time he's touching himself for the first time. And so Dr. Dietz is like the dead animal and his first sexual experience 
and his fascination with dead animals fertilized each other in there to create the necrophilia that eventually he'd become fascinated with. And so, you know, that's happening that this lust for, you know, power that he's interested in. This is from, um, Paulo Ginotakis. She writes this behavioral patterns and Genesis of a polymorphous paraphilic serial killer in the journal of forensic science and criminal investigation. In his most extreme fantasy realization, he tried to create a slave, transforming a man into a completely passive object, like a doll that could belong to him entirely. He was incapable of normal human relations with consenting partners, so he sought gratification with inanimate bodies, which could not have opposed resistance. The dehumanization process was materialized. He did not need more than a body without a soul, deprived of any human emotion and will. Some argued that he avoided suffering his victims by sedating them, but the truth is that the excitement he had was deriving from the control on their bodies rather than the killing itself. He lucidly and rationally managed himself to obtain what he desired. Now that's why he's not insane. Because he lucidly rationalized it rather than a fugue state. Right. Like he wasn't, I mean, he drank a lot. And he, sometimes he would drink himself until he had the courage to kill the person. But he still did that on purpose so he'd have the courage to kill the person so then he could do what he wanted with him. And his necrophilia and fetishism, and this is from, once again, uh, the master's book, The Shrine of Jeffrey Dahmer. He gazed at the pictures that aroused him most, usually photographs of muscular torsos and hairless chests. That's what attracted him to Stephen Hicks in the first place was the, the bare-chested hitchhiker. The chest and the abdomen were the areas whereon he fixed his eyes as he masturbated, and that the fantasy of one day holding a chest like that, being with it, possessing it, took shape in his mind. It was not the person to whom the body belonged that mattered. Indeed, that might be an intrusion, a complication. It was the qualities of the body itself. When Tracy Edwards, the guy that got away, was in his apartment, and they had the movie on, he's giving Tracy Edwards a drink, he rests his head on Tracy Edwards' chest. And he goes, I just want to listen to your heartbeat. And that was before he handcuffed him or whatever. Yeah. So that's his fetish. That's, you know, so when you go by the DSM-3 and the paraphilia, that's the necrophilia and the fetishism uh, that contribute uh, to his desire. Some people also say that there was a racial component because a lot of his victims were black. And uh, there's a, a paper, Ian Bernard, The Racialization of Sexuality. Uh, many Adamers, he says, many Adamers acquaintances report that he seemed to hate black people and black gay men in particular, and frequently referred to black people with racist slurs. I mean, that's also what Preston Davis says, his old... His army bunkmates. Yeah. Dahmer said it was just the people that would come home with him. So he said there was nothing... It was opportunistic, not necessarily profiling. That's what he said. I mean... Whether that's true or not, or whether he didn't want people to think he was a racist, like they already thought the worst <laughs> things about him in yeah. the world, and maybe they didn't want, but there are definitely people that think, and, but also Milwaukee, the black population, and their relationship with the police in the 1980s. When we talk about the homicide rate, the African-American homicide rate is also crazy. Like it's, there's just a ton of murders happening. And so it's, it's people he can get away with because the police are either too busy or they're not paying enough attention or they're just like, oh, it's another dead black guy. You know, like they, they, you know, he's using the police's poor treatment of these communities to get away with it. 
And he wants to get away with it. There's a guy that he doesn't have to kill, but he kills because he thinks he'll get in trouble. So he is killing out of self-preservation. And, you know, his death eventually in 1994, he's in uh, the Columbia Correctional Institution in Portage. And um, he ends up getting murdered by another inmate by the name of Christopher Scarver. And, you know, originally some people thought that that was a, a, like a racially charged crime that Scarver killed him because Dahmer killed so many black men. And so this is kind of how it goes down. And this is from the New York Post in 2015. Scarver eventually does an interview with the New York Post, like from jail. And he said that he kept up in his pocket a newspaper article detailing how Dahmer killed, dismembered, in some cases, eight to 17 men and boys from 1978 to 1991. Scarver, then a 25-year-old convicted murderer, had just retrieved his mop and was filling a bucket with water when someone poked him in the back. I turned around and Dahmer and Jesse were kind of laughing under their breath. Now, Jesse Anderson was another person in the room with Jeffrey Dahmer and Christopher Scarver. And Jesse Anderson, a few years before, was convicted of killing his pregnant girlfriend at Northridge Mall in Milwaukee. And then he blamed it on two black guys. So he does that. He leaves like a hat, like a, like a baseball cap, you know, like say, like using a, a black stereotype or whatever, wearing the baseball cap off the side. He's like, these two gang kind of guys, they killed my pregnant girlfriend. This is horrible. And he uses it like, and this is the hat they dropped. Well, how he gets caught is that the girl that sold him the baseball cap remembered his face when she saw him on the news after his girlfriend died. And he's all tearfully acting, you know, about it. And she's like, I, I sold him that cap. Wow. So he tries to, you know, very racially charged in Milwaukee, you know, and the North side. And, and even today, Milwaukee is known for being a city that's very segregated. There's a black section of town, a white section of town, and it's even worse in the late 80s and early 90s, and there's often tension because of it. And so Jesse Anderson does this horrible thing, racially charged crime, and he's on a detail with Jeffrey Dahmer, also someone, a white guy that killed a lot of poor black guys. And Christopher Scarver is right there, and he says, Dahmer and Jesse are laughing under their breath. I looked right in their eyes, and I couldn't tell which had done it. The three men split up and Scarver followed Dahmer toward a staff locker room. Scarver grabbed a metal bar from the weight room and confronted Dahmer with the news story he'd been carrying around in his pocket. I asked him if he did those things because I was fiercely disgusted. He was shocked. Yes, he was, Scarver said. He started looking for the door pretty quick and I blocked him. With two swings of the bar, Scarver crushed Dahmer's skull. He ended up dead. I put his head down. Scarver would then go on and kill Jesse Anderson too. So he ends up getting two more life sentences added on. He's 25 years old. So was he already in a life sentence for murder? Yes. Scarver. He's a so convic- he really had nothing to lose by taking these two guys out. No, he's a convicted murderer. And then he's with these two guys and he claims they made him mad and then he kills him. You know, and eventually in a blog post, he says that he didn't tell the New York Post all these kind of things. Like, so he's released a couple of books of poems from prison and things like that. You can buy Christopher Scarborough books of poems. From Classy. Prison. And he, he's trying to rehabilitate or whatever. He's never going to leave prison for the rest of his life. But even at the time, there were some people thinking 
that there was a conspiracy behind it or some reason that they let Christopher Scarver kill Jeffrey Dahmer. Because why would you put these two guys, this is two of Milwaukee's most notorious racially charged criminals in the past decade, and you put them together with Christopher Scarver in a situation where, like, you could set this guy off. Yeah. So they, and, they put them in a cage with wild animals and right and and a, a guy that was ready to kill him with nothing to lose. Annie Schwartz, that that reporter who got back in the Dahmer's apartment, um, she's being interviewed about Dahmer, and they ask her about Dahmer's death. She says, "I'm not a big conspiracy theorist, but the most high risk prisoner in the entire prison was cleaning a bathroom with the second most high risk prisoner, Jesse Anderson, along with Christopher Scarver, who is mentally unstable." That those three would have been able to be together in the first place and long enough for Scarver to beat them both to death with a barbell and no guards say anything. This part of the story is the most murky. How did this happen in a maximum security prison and nobody saw anything? I still have the names of all the guards who were working at the time, and I'm always watching the death notices to see if there will be a deathbed confession by somebody who had been there. But so far, there's nothing like that. 2015, so Scarver again asked about if the guards approved of what he did. They had something to do with what took place, yes, said Scarver, noting that the guards disappeared just before he clobbered Dahmer with the 20-inch five-pound metal bar. But Scarver refused to elaborate out of fear for his own safety. I would need a good attorney to ensure there would not be any retaliation by Wisconsin officials or to get me out of any type of retaliatory position they would put me in, Scarver said. Sure. So, 1994, Jeffrey Dahmer dies. It's, that's it. The Oxford apartments he lived with, torn down. You know, you can't go see him. People were going there and they were gawking at the, and then nobody wanted to live in the place where Jeffrey Dahmer committed those murders. I mean, I'm amazed that that guy bought that place in Ohio where they conducted the ghost hunt. I could see the curiosity in a single family home, but with the apartment complex in probably a rough part of town. There probably wasn't a lot of appeal to right. Domerbilia. Right. right. And there's a Cream City cannibal tour that runs through there for people who are interested. So uh, there are people that go and they want to walk in the footsteps of Jeffrey Dahmer. And so they'll go by where the old apartments are, but th those apartments have been gone, you know, within a year of Dahmer being caught. Those places were torn down. Yeah. And... So, like, you know, what we think about the legacy of this, I mean, the, the fascination still continues. Like, we're talking about it today, 30 years after he was caught. And also, more than half a million searches a month on Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah. So, you know, and some of the conspiracy theories about it get a little way out there. Like, did you hear the one that Dahmer might be an asset? I've heard the, his time in the army. He was trained specifically to be a killer. Right. And also MKUltra comes into the equation. Right, like they mind-controlled him to be a killer, and then he just went off the reservation. It, it seems like he had the tendencies, and maybe, you know, they controlled for that. But I don't think you need to jump to conclusions to get from his upbringing to what he actually did. Right. And there were some people connecting... The Synthesemphone brothers, like their family, they were, I mean, Laotian immigrants, but to the World Vision charity, 
And, you know, World Vision is like a big Christian charity that does things for, you know, they build wells in Africa and stuff like that or around the world. And some people said that World Vision is connected to intelligence operations and things like that. Like, you know, he was killing them for some specific reason uh, beyond his just necrophiliac and, and murderous tendencies. You know, people can connect a bunch of different things, but I, with Jeffrey Dahmer, you know, the rabbit hole is deep enough on just what was going on and what he did. So, and, and the occult aspect and the cannibal aspect really get played up, I think, because those are shocking and interesting, but they don't really develop until real late in his murder spree. Like he wants to build the altar. He wants to save the people inside him. I mean, this where, I mean, he gets fired from his job. Like he's not going to work. He's just killing people. He's just killing people and drinking. And that night that Tracy Edwards came back with him, he'd already approached a bunch of people. And, you know, he was just out. He didn't, he was approaching anybody, whether they were gay or straight. Just in a frenzy looking for his next victim. Looking for somebody. Just trying to get his fix. To bring back, right. And so when he gets into that idea of the altar of skulls and he gets into the cannibalism, he's in, that's where he's his most desperate and he can't think of anything else. And then he starts with the magical thinking right there. So, you know, if you compare him to someone like the son of Sam, where they had links to Satanism early on, it's, you know, the possessed dog telling <laughs> telling David Berkowitz what to do. There is a religious aspect of it right away. Mm -hmm. With Dahmer, it doesn't seem to come until he's losing touch with reality, you know, and he either knows he's going to be caught or doesn't care anymore and just starts going out. With um, Conorak Synthesim phone, the body of Hughes, Tony Hughes, was still on the bed when he brought Conorak Synthesim phone, you know, into the house. And so... Conrad says this is already a little bit drugged, and Dahmer brings him into the bedroom. Wow. And so this is, if he'd have been more lucid, he'd have seen a dead body and had a chance to run away. And this is, you know, but he was too, he was kind of in the middle of the sedatives kicking in. And so he's risky to the point of bringing in someone he has not currently finished victimizing with a former victim, you know, body still in the bed. And he's telling people to go get a beer in the fridge when he's got a skeleton in the freezer and a head in a cardboard box laying up like a cake unreal in the fridge and so like the the real salacious aspects of the story beyond just the the very sad thing of his murders and stuff like that don't really happen to the end when he's like losing touch and losing it and it, it's an interesting thing about Dahmer is that this probably could have been prevented you know, not just in a police aspect, but he, it's not like he was completely outside of the system. He was in, you know, you're obviously you're mentally evaluated a little bit in the army and they just thought he was an alcoholic or whatever, but he starts being mentally evaluated by the city of Milwaukee police department and the justice system starting in 1982, five years before he's actually murdered someone in Wisconsin. And they weren't able to find it. You know, it's his parents. Um, I mean, his mother, 
his birth mother died a few years ago, but Lionel Dimer's still alive and stuff. And and his parents betray a, a fairly sympathetic character. You know, you can say blame it on his parents didn't love him enough. His parents, you know, his, his mom and his dad were fighting. They got divorced and things. And well, you know, they'll say we still loved our son. It just, you know, we didn't know what he was going to turn out to be. And so if we could have caught any of those things along the way, probably could have turned him in the right direction. It didn't seem, it wasn't the thrill of the kill. It was what he wanted to do afterwards. And it was the, it was the decades of the festering fantasies that eventually he murdered so he could obtain. And um, the sad thing is, probably could have stopped him if they would have listened more to the psychiatrists who were working on him in the 1980s. Yeah, and after the two incidents involving minors, the fact that he served suspended sentences and didn't get taken care of, institutionalized, the fact uh, he wasn't psychologically in yeah, evaluated yeah. and um, institutionalized, for lack right. of a better word. So, well, we hoped you guys learned something about the legend of the Milwaukee cannibal, the cream city killer, the sad story of Jeffrey Dahmer and his poor victims and what they had to go through. And I just hope you guys learned something new. If you're interested in Milwaukee history and would like to learn more of maybe some of the darker stories and things like that, and the ghost stories, which we talked about a little bit today, uh, you can always check out some of our Milwaukee tours at AmericanGhostWalks.com, or you can go right to it at MilwaukeeGhosts.com. And if you check out my page on Instagram, at Badgerland Legends, I post a lot about Milwaukee. I've written about the Ambassador Hotel. I have the room number in there. You can also see Jeffrey Dahmer's graffiti. He signs it Jeff Dahmer. Very informal. (laughs) As well as the one little-known legend about the Dane County long-term crime storage in the basement of the police department in downtown Madison. After his death, they had to hold Dahmer's body for evidence until the trial was through. And they held it right there in Madison because Columbia County had no such storage place. So if you want to read more about that, check out that legend as well at Badgerland Legends. Awesome. And we'll see you guys again on Wisconsin Legends. Hey guys, real quick, this is Mike from Wisconsin Legends Podcast coming at you, letting you know that Jeff and I will be working on season two of Wisconsin Legends coming up right after this Halloween 2022. So please, if you go to wisconsinlegendspodcast.com, you can go to the bottom of the screen and hit subscribe and we'll tell you when the new episodes are out. Or you can follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, wherever you get podcasts, you will find Wisconsin Legends.